O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. Father, this first portion of Psalm 88 describes us before we met you. The wrath of God abided upon us in our sin. We were at enmity with the cross. We were your enemies. But now, because of the grace of salvation, we have been ransomed, redeemed, born again, set apart for your purposes, exalted at the right hand, Lord Jesus, ruling with Christ. Lord, brought up from the miry clay of our sins, set on the foundation and rock and cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have ransomed and rescued us. We pray, Lord, this morning as we open your scriptures and we behold the very events that made our salvation possible and reverse the course of our hell-bent direction that our hearts would swell with renewed joy, that our minds, Lord, and tongues would sing with praise and worship and glory to your holy name, and that our, the confidence of our testimony might increase to stand on Christ and stand for Christ as we testify as light and salt in this dying generation. I pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on this earth through our lives in this time as it is in heaven. And Holy Spirit, we trust that you are the means that will use the word and the preaching. You are the one who will use these, in fact, as means to awaken our hearts today, to infuse within us, Lord, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. We thank you for what you have ordained and planned before time began, even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to open the scriptures this morning. Let us do so in Matthew chapter 26, where we have the record of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. The title of this morning's message is Betrayed and Arrested. The moment in Jesus' ministry where he is apprehended by the nefarious forces who have plotted his death, his condemnation, his false trial, his destruction. These were those uh, plotting behind the scenes in chapter 26.3 we read of in weeks prior when the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. They plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people. We have the record of the feast uh, in as much as it was celebrated by Christ and his disciples also in the same chapter. We've covered this at length, verses 17 through verses 29. After this had concluded, they, meaning Christ and his disciples, sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. And then a few events transpire. First of all, a prayer where Christ takes on, in the burden of prayer, the weight of the cup of God's wrath and affliction and trial. And then comes the moment where it seems the plans of Caiaphas and company come to fruition in verse 47. So with your Bible open to Matthew 26, 47, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word out of reverence? 
The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 47 through 56, read as follows. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, that one, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The contextual emphasis of this chapter, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus on his journey to the cross, could not be more clear. Jesus has said as much in as many words in verse 56. That is the purpose for the events that we just read. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. He has reiterated this in a verse prior 54. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? Time and again the author of Matthew has reminded us that it is written, it is written, referring to the Scriptures, prior revelation, declaration of the ultimate and overarching, history-shaping decree of Almighty God that has shaped the story that we read in the Gospel. Christ Himself has echoed this each time He has said things like, the Scriptures will be fulfilled or must be fulfilled or my time is at hand. Or when He says, you know, that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, prophesying things that have existed in the decree of God long before these moments take shape. Regardless of what the players, the characters in this drama think on a personal level, how much their hand, their sword, their decree, their rule, their influence is the cause of these events, there remains the final, primary, the overarching purpose and cause. The Word of God is being fulfilled by the hand of God in history as every event takes shape before our eyes as we read. Even passages from the Psalter come alive in the narrative as we see their main character, that is, Christ Himself, who is sung about and heralded in the Psalms, assailed with the afflictions that are immortalized in the worship of the synagogue that had preceded Him for centuries. Psalm 88, verses 8 through 18, we read the beginning of that psalm this morning, which can describe in one sense our plight before Christ. But in another, and most primary, and primarily so, it represents the weight of sin, and the wrath of God that lie heavy upon Christ before and as He went to the cross. Later in the same chapter, 
In verse 8 we have, You have caused my companions to shun me. Who is speaking in the first person here? This is, if you will, again, the messianic first person. Christ is speaking immortally in these words which preceded his events in time when the scriptures say, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. This is a theme repeated in this psalm as it closes in verse 18. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. My companions have become darkness. When will these scriptures take place? This must happen. No, Peter, put away your sword. Do not interfere. These things must happen. We hear the thrust of the text. Why? Because the scriptures must be fulfilled. It must be so. The closest companions of Christ must desert him at that time. The disciples must leave him and flee. Judas himself must betray him with a kiss. Why? So that the plan foreordained in God's perfect will will come to fruition and the wrath of God will be borne by his agent, his God-man, Jesus Christ, his son for our sins. As we continue to behold some of these thoughts It strikes us the importance of these moments, the betrayal and arrest of Christ in a different way when we consider that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record prominently, they all prominently feature the betrayal and and arrest of Christ. Why? Isn't this a low point in what we would write in, in a history that we would write or a biography we would prefer? No one likes to see the protagonist at his lowest point seemingly overtaken and conquered by his enemies. Well, this is not what was happening. That would be a short-sighted view of what was taking place. In fact, he would triumph over death. He would triumph over his enemies, and he would do it through this means. All four Gospels, therefore, prominently feature the betrayal and arrest of Christ for this reason, because this is the plan of God coming to fruition, being fulfilled in history. It is not the defeat of Christ in fact, that we read of this morning, but the triumph of the Father's will that is detailed. It is the triumph of the will of the Father. In fact, we are reading that, uh, and, and when, as we read these events, we read of the sips from the cup, if you will, of Christ's trial, affliction, and wrath. Recalling the Garden of Gethsemane, when Christ prayed in verse 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, he cries out in anguish and petition, if it were possible that another way would be made. He says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, here he is resolved, your will be done. And so he takes, as it were, the cup of God's wrath and justice due for sinners, and he begins to set it to his lips. And as he does so, the first sip involves the betrayal of a close friend. One of his closest. While he was still speaking, Judas came. While Christ was still speaking to his disciples, in the context of taking on this burden and anguish of the cup of the Father's wrath, as he has exhorted them to sleep and take your rest later on, for the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. And boom, right there, entering into the scene in the garden is a whole contingency, a mob. That is whipped up in a rage with swords and clubs and hearts of enmity against the Son of Man. And while he is still speaking, they come, Judas and his band, his motley crew, to arrest him. This sip from the cup that the Messiah takes on our behalf at this moment 
is better appreciated with the bigger picture in view. While his followers at this moment in the story, Christ's disciples, remain disillusioned, scared and befuddled at this time, they would soon echo what Jesus clearly here proclaims. Very quickly, turn over to Acts chapter 2. In the heat of the moment, they're scared, they're disillusioned, they run all directions. They cannot stand with their Savior at this time. Their flesh is weak, even if their spirit were strong. But there will come a day, very soon, when the picture of what is going on dawns on them in spirit-inspired gospel revelation, and their heart and attitude will turn from one of one from one of fear and disillusionment to confidence and proclamation. Acts 2.22, listen to the message that Peter himself preaches. Yes, the same man who denied him three times. Yes, the man who deserted him at his, at his hour of need. Yes, the man who broke his vow. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And goes on to, prophet, to state the prophecy of David concerning him. You see, at this moment, when the Holy Spirit illumined to their hearts and their minds the meaning of the betrayal and arrest of Christ, fear turned into confidence. And disillusionment turned into proclamation. But during these moments, there are many characters who reacted in different ways. And they illustrate some of the weaknesses of the flesh. They're a good warning for us. As we consider these verses this morning, consider the following. While the scriptures are fulfilled in these events, all the while the context illustrates a few things. First of all, the blasphemy of betrayal. First main point this morning, the blasphemy of betrayal. What was it like and what were the aspects of Judas' denial and worse than that betrayal of the Christ? Secondly, the shortcomings of the sword. Christ gives admonition and discipleship. It's, it strikes me, let me pause real parenthetically for a moment. It strikes me as absolutely amazing. The love of Christ coming through in his hour of greatest anguish with corrective words with nurturing truth, and with words of discipleship. Christ is discipling his flock while he has just, as it were, sweat drops of blood, taking on the anguish of the sin of the world. And he, knowing that they will leave him in just moments, re continues to share with them the truth of God's word. Secondly, the shortcomings of the sword. Thirdly, we witness the capriciousness of the crowd. Blasphemy of betrayal, the shortcomings of the sword, and the capriciousness of the crowd. It's important, I feel, to see in the text where most people, or the inclination, the impulse of most people, the crowd, the disciples, the leaders who did not understand Christ and did not affirm and value Him, did not have the gospel in the forefront of their thinking, what was their impulse? If they don't run to Christ, where do they run? If they don't run to Him ideologically, where do they run? What other ideas, what other idols control them? If they don't run to Him for safety, where else do they go to feel secure? If they don't run for him, to Him for hope, where do they go for the promise of a secure future? In this text, we see these three examples, and under them some subpoints 
of what people tend to do in crisis. And they are a warning for us. May we run and recognize the gospel in moments of crisis and not run anywhere else. Our nation and the context of our culture today feel scared and uh, disillusioned and dissatisfied and separated and marginalized and disenfranchised and uh, you name it. All of those sentiments are echoed all the time. People feel divided and polarized. They feel uh, they're at a disadvantage culturally. And, and there's all sorts of sentiments that cause people to react. And the conditions thus today are similar to the ones then. And we can see where people tend to gravitate during these times. And if we recognize with discernment these things, we can better point them in, uh, through repentance to Christ. First of all, let's consider the blasphemy of betrayal. Again, Matthew 26, 47. While he was still speaking, while Christ, that is, was still speaking, Judas came, he was one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. The kiss of apostasy. Psalm chapter 2 is frequently cited from this pulpit because it is a great text, reference point to remind us that the idols that are so venerated in our day will be destroyed. When I say that, I mean the edifices of humanism the nations that plot and rage, the peoples that plot in vain, the kings of the earth that set themselves against the ruler and counsel, against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say things like, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet we find the sovereignty of God rules in judgment over them. And his long suffering is no measure of their power, but instead Instead, it speaks of their soon coming perdition. He sits in the heavens, he laughs, he holds them in derision. And later in the same psalm, that demonstrates to us the sovereign rule over the ideas and the whims and the institutions of man, we have this warning. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The term kiss is very in interesting and weighty with connotation and meaning in Scripture. In the context of Psalm 2.12, the cultural situation was such that a kiss at, in this context was reserved not just for the closest of companions, but in fact for the most revered of sovereigns. The ultimate picture, symbolically, outwardly, of submission to, reverence for, and, uh, uh, and kneeling before, and veneration, and service, and obedience, was to kiss the hand, as it were, of the sovereign, of the ruler. And with this act of submission, with this act of reverence, it was to say, you are my sovereign, you are my ruler, and I am your subject. I serve at your mercy and your pleasure. The kiss was also culturally appropriate for those who were very close companions, who shared a bond of loyalty and unity that was akin to covenant. 
that was in fact attended by a covenant that would be uh, something that was meant to be an unbreakable bond of promise where a mutual affirmation of a particular goal affirmed by two parties and sealed with something like a kiss or represented by something like a kiss. There was covenant signs and covenant relationships and covenant agreements that meant something. And so the kiss then was an instrument of loyalty, of undying devotion to a relationship, of submission to the ultimate authority or the overarching hierarchical uh, authority and priority of another. That's what the kiss was meant to represent. This was not that kiss at all. This was the kiss of apostasy. What is apostasy? Apostasy is leaving, falling away, disavowing your once professed faith. Now the heart of apostasy is one that's insidious and wicked indeed. First of all, it shares an affinity, uh, something of a relationship. But it's a self-serving one, a closeness with something. But its uh, design is not ultimately to bless or benefit the other, but to bless and instead to benefit itself. And in this case, the kiss of Judas was used as an instrument of apostasy. Judas used, he exploited, he took advantage of his close proximity of Christ for treachery, for treason, for seductive malevolence. His proximity to Christ was exploited as an occasion to malign the truth. The kiss of Judas is apropos in describing the heart of many in our nation today. There is a sort of cultural affinity or a closeness or proximity to the gospel or Christ, generally speaking, that many have. They know somebody who knows a Christian, or they grew up in and around the church. But that closeness is often used merely to de deride or to blaspheme or to distance or to mock or to disavow any true willingness to suffer for Christ's name. The calling to suffer for Christ's name is universal so long as this eschaton continues. It does not end with the close of the canon. It is here today. There are many today who want to say, oh, I, I love Jesus, I appreciate Jesus, I'm close to Jesus, I have an experience with Jesus, or I, I, I lo love my neighbor and this and that. But when it comes right down to the testing time, their closeness to Christ is just the occasion of apostasy or just an opportunity for them in the kiss of apostasy to distance themselves and ex they exploit that occasion to malign the truth. And this happens all over the place. Let us be aware, lest we share a closeness with Christ and deny the power of that relationship. Children of this body, if, you listen, if you're listening now or if you listen later on recording, I would encourage you, growing up in a Christian home, to fear and revere the God of your parents. There will come a day when your faith will be tested and tried, and I pray that God would lead every child in this body to a saving relationship of Jesus Christ through His primary means of the discipline and admonition of their godly parents. But hear me, it is dangerous to be close to Christ and not to fear Him. It is dangerous to be in proximity with the truth and not to tremble at the power and the authority and the sovereignty they're represented. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. Let not the familiarity 
of our association with Christian things breed contempt. But let us remember that it is with love and fear that God is rightly and duly worshipped. Otherwise, we could find ourselves in a very uh, precarious place indeed, where the kiss of Christ or the kiss to Christ is nothing more than a betrayal of Him. Let our kiss to Christ not be that at all. Let it be one of reverence, of fear, of submission, of respect, of closeness, of covenant, of loyalty, of appreciation, of love for the sin of for Him, for the sin of the world that He took upon His shoulders. In fact, the opposite of the kiss of apostasy. May it be the kiss of true worship. Secondly, under blasphemy of betrayal, there's an empty confession. An empty confession uttered by Judas in verse 48. Now the betrayer had given him a sign saying, The one that I will kiss is the man sees him. Here it is, verse 49. He, Judas, came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Greetings, Rabbi. That's an empty confession. It has the ring of deception. It is a hollow affirmation. The term rabbi was meant to be a term of respect. It would sometimes be used with, uh, in the context of, of someone who is recognized to have a superior role, authority, or position in society. Both the Jews and the Greeks recognized something of this in their culture, and we even today have shreds and vestiges of it. To say rabbi was to say master, my superior, my lord, the one before whom I defer because you are superior to me in some way or another. I have a friend who takes martial arts and he is a multi-black belt in something, some Asian word I can't pronounce, karate thing. And he has a master who's a discipline, uh, uh, who is the master of his particular discipline. And there is a hierarchy of authority and deference within the context of that uh, study of martial arts. And he has told me that there are certain protocol that you follow within the context of his school. If you want to go up and to approach the master, if he's doing something with someone else, you simply go into his presence and, uh, where he's training someone and you just sit. He recognizes by that that you would like his attention when it is due. He finishes his work, he turns to you and gives you permission to say, to approach him and to give him uh, or to come to him with your petition, your need, your question, what have you. Within that context is something of a lost picture culturally of what the term rabbi means. It's a kind of reverence, deference and respect based upon the superiority of that individual as it pertains to a particular aspect of life. Well, in the case of Christ, listen, it's everything. My friend only defers to the dude in the dojo that I just described in the case of throwing punches and whipping his arms around to hurt people in the case of self-defense. That's the only context where he shows that kind of reverence and respect. If the man was in the supermarket, he wouldn't sit cross-legged by the bananas until he was finished purchasing his watermelon to say hi or to ask him a question about groceries. But in the case of Christ, the question remains, how many areas of life What disciplines does Christ represent as our superior to which we ought to and are called to defer in every possible category? There is no exception, every single one. Well, this empty confession of greetings, Rabbi, was totally used 
to betray Christ rather than to honor and respect him. It was used to belittle him, to turn him over to his enemies, to profit at his expense. It was to use this association of this full relationship that Judas maintained with Christ to better himself, to earn him 30 pieces of silver, to put him in the good graces of somebody else, to make him feel important, to make him feel successful, to advance his career, his standing and influence in the community. And so when he said, greetings, rabbi, he did not mean, I submit to your rule, your lordship, your authority, and your superiority over me. Instead, his association with Christ was an opportunity to, to advance only himself. He said in so many words in, that would appear to express delight and joy at finding and rejoining the company of his master, I hate you. Greetings, Rabbi, translated, I hate you might just as well have those words. Why? Because this man was the only one who could save him. He was reducing to his own footstool to advance himself. That will never happen, ultimately speaking. There is, there, that is to say that God, that Christ, the true sovereign, will never suffer himself to be a footstool. There is only one ultimate footstool historically, ultimately, forever speaking. And that is every Judas, every enemy of Christ, who will serve as his footstool one day, as the scriptures declare. Unfortunately, Judas, the son of perdition, was placed under Christ's feet. You see, it was war, though. Who will be whose footstool? Ultimately, the declaration of war ended with a declaration of victory and the terms were unconditional surrender, and Judas was defeated and placed with all Christ's enemies under his feet. Think about this, saints. Let not our confession be an empty one. When we cry out in association with Christ, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm going to church, I have friends who are believers, I appreciate the, the, the things of God and, and spiritual theme conversations and hearing the word preached. Let it not be an empty greetings, Rabbi, but let it be a reverential deference to the master, to the one who is the sovereign and the superior in every area of life. And if you share with me any areas of your own life that stand in need of repentance, confess them, call them for what they are and admit them to the Lord and say, Father, subdue me. Place me and the sins that I still struggle with under your feet. I submit to you. You are, after all, the one who conquered sin and death. Conquer it in me. Finally, under the blasphemy of betrayal, there's an omniscient rebuke, meaning that Christ knows all. And when he rebukes Judas, it comes with an authority that is matchless and powerful. Think about it. Matthew 26, this entire event had been preceded by Christ saying these words in and amongst these events at the Last Supper meal, verse 21, as they were eating, he, Jesus, said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Christ knew exactly what would happen. As they were sorrowful and began to say to one another after, or one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish goes with me, uh, with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as, as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray Him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Notice the empty confession again. Is it I, Master? He said, You have said so. 
The rebuke actually preceded the event as well as followed it. When Christ says in verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Those words seem inconsequential on the page, but they rung with the perdition and the judgment and the declaration from the omniscient almighty God in the ears of Judas. They could not escape his head. They drove him crazy. He ended up taking his own life in repentanceless remorse for what he had done. Because he knew that he was suppressing the truth and his unrighteousness and any thought that he could violate his Messiah to advance himself was a total lie that he had believed. He had believed to his own destruction. This was to fulfill the scriptures which tell us time and again in the Psalms and other places, as we've mentioned, that Christ would be betrayed by those among his closest associates. A psalm I thought of this, uh, this week as I was preparing is 55. In Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, we have this cry from the psalmist. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house we walked in the throng. It's difficult for us to realize the privilege that Judas had. Think of it. He was one in twelve, one among twelve in all recorded history to share an unfathomable privilege of communion this close, walking with the dust of his master, covering the cloak of his garment for years, to the incarnate Christ. This was not just a regular old enemy. This was my companion, my, my familiar friend, the one in whom we used to take sweet counsel together. In light of all this, it should strike us with fear and reverence that belittling or taking lightly or thinking more about ourself than Christ himself is dangerous indeed. The word friend in Greek is hetairos. Properly, the definition is properly a companion, but normally an imposter, posing as a comrade, but in reality has his own interests in mind. Hetairos is the term friend Jesus used to describe Judas in his omniscient rebuke. It means properly a companion, but normally an imposter, posing as a comrade, but in reality has his own interests in mind. There, if you took a survey or read a Barnum poll in our nation today, you would find millions confessing Christ, you know, answering the survey appropriately so that the box would be checked Christian. I wonder how many, though, in our nation today are not properly a friend, not properly a companion, but more normally are an but more uh, uh, commonly are an imposter posing as a comrade, but in reality they have their own interests in mind. Do you see the gospel came with not just a promise of triumph, but also a call to die. When Christ, before he was triumphantly revealed 
on the Mount of Transfiguration, as we studied again last week, what did he call his disciples to do? He called them to die in chapter 16. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? As Christ declares in His gospel, through His message, through His instructions, through His patient, loving discipleship of His followers, He says that our life should be laid down, considered lost, dead, in order that it might serve as a building block for the kingdom of God, not the other way around. That God Himself is another rung in our own career or advancement or self-importance ladder, but instead, if only Christ may be glorified, the Lamb may receive the reward of His sufferings, that is a worthy cause for me to abandon what was once gained for me in order that I may gain Christ. Secondly, this morning, scriptures are fulfilled and all the while certain tendencies are illustrated. We talked about the blasphemy of betrayal. Secondly, illustrated in our text in Matthew 26 are the shortcomings of the sword. This is interesting in verses 51 through 54, the impulse of Peter and the correction of Christ. And behold, one of those who were with, Je- with Jesus, we find him in Luke to be Peter, in fact, stretched out his hand, or uh, perhaps it's in John, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You see, the sword was not the answer in this particular situation. There are shortcomings of the sword. The sword I'm using here is a metaphor for power, just unqualified force or power. We should never place our trust or run to a place faith in unqualified exercise of leverage or power, or the sword. Uh, This was Peter's impulse, and it was a short-sighted resolve, but you remember the context. The context is such that in Matthew 16, he had made a promise, a hasty vow. He had said that uh, he would defend Jesus to the death. He said also that he would, if it were up to him, he would stand in between Uh, the death of Christ and his own death, that is the death of his Messiah. From that time, verse 21, chapter 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and rebuked him, to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You can see the way that Peter had resolved himself to defend his Lord. It was short-sighted indeed. It was relying on the shortcomings of the sword and force and leverage, missing the word of God, that this must happen, that this was God's decree and design. The word of God takes priority over the use of force. Peter took him aside. He said these things, far be it from you, Lord. What did Jesus say to him? He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And there is the key. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
the impulse, most of us, even well-meaning, even well-intentioned, even true believers at times, is to set our mind on the things of man instead of the things of God. And the sword is one example of this. Uh, this kind of impulsive reaction, this short-sighted resolve features again in our text. doesn't nod Matthew 26. Peter answered him, this is after the prophecy that Jesus said, I, speaking in the first person of God the Father, will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Verse 33, Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, or I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Yet hours later, verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. Why? Because their minds were more on the things of man than on the things of God. These passages remind us of the emotional bent and inclination and intentions entertained by the impulsive uh, the impulse to resort to what we used to do or see done or our own experience or figure we ought to do in, in this certain context. As we see even in our life today, there are many times where we fall under the sway of crises. Uh, life for the finite creature in a fallen world is just navigating with very limited, fallen, broken, blunt tools from one crisis to the next. And the only escape is to realize there's a sovereign God who orders all things. This is a quote, I loved it particularly for this political season, and I think you'll see why, by a man uh, and whose name I can't pronounce, but I will try, Prince Thurur, and he was a politician, he was also a theologian uh, uh, several hundred years ago, where a lot of times uh, politicians of the Christian order had more, more prof profound things to say than is oftentimes the case these days. Listen to what he says, pent-up anger and long-held frustration due to economic stagnation, moral decay, spiritual impotency, and political corruption invariably pave the way for the rise of crass manipulators. Instead of a mastery of truth, such revolutionary opportunists tap into fear and rage, ignorance and prejudice, staging great public spectacles of narcissism. Wow. Doesn't that describe what's going on in Matthew 26? People are moved under these circumstances to react, to stage great displays. Judas advancing himself by betraying his Messiah. Great spectacle of narcissism. Uh, spiritual impotency, impotency, political corruption of the leaders of that day, both ecclesiastical and civic, moved them to do uh, things that man manipulate the masses, whip up a mob with swords and clubs to come and take Christ by force. They manipulate instead of acknowledging the truth. Re remember when Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, I am the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? Pilate could care nothing for truth. He, anachronistically speaking, it was a complete Machiavellian. Well, who was Machiavelli? He was a Renaissance man who's called the first political scientist who said basically that politics and government and use of force and the sword is nothing more than expediency. Uh, later, Lenin and Stalin would echo him. Just moving chess pieces, unqualified use of leverage. But these kinds of things illustrate the shortcomings of the sword. And the sword was not the answer for those who arrested Christ. And it would not give the leaders and Caiaphas and uh, 
uh, salvation from this man who threatened to dethrone their influence on the people. And nor was the sword the answer for Peter in this instance because it was not the time and place to wield it. So what is the overarching guiding principle which can give clarity, direction, uh, discipline, resolve, and discernment in every situation? It is the Word of God. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. The sword is not the answer here. The Scriptures are. So, of course, is not to say that the sword is never appropriately wielded. We know that to be true, but it is wielded only when the scriptures, appropriately only when the scriptures deem it so. Another shortcoming of the sword is illustrated in this, no doubt, a common proverb that Christ employs at this time, providing direction for his disciples, even when he is in duress. Verse 52, he says, put your sword back in its place. Listen to this proverb, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Move to Revelation 13. I believe these words are prophetic. Several commentators have pointed out in my study that this same language, this same concept and idea reappears in the destruction of the beast that's pictured in Revelation chapter 13. In verses 5 through 10, we have this record. It says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Notice, great persecution is allowed by the sovereign God, by His decree, by the beast, which it could represent uh, false malevolent authorities, institutions such as we see them in Matthew 26, that take up the sword against the people of God, and in this case, uh, today, against His Messiah also. Verse 7, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If everyone has an ear, let anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. And listen, if anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is illustrated in the Old Testament as well. Do you remember Saul? And as he was chasing down David, he wanted to destroy God's anointed because he wanted to secure for himself authority, unquestioned by what he saw as a usurper for his throne. But in fact, Saul himself proved to be the usurper. Paul took up the sword against David. What was Paul's end? His own sword, he fell upon it in the day of battle, trying to save the last vestiges of his own nobility and his own legacy as he was being defeated by his enemies. Jesus uh, proclaims this by parable form in this section. Those who live by the sword, other translations say, will perish by the sword. Those who uh, take the sword will perish by the sword. He also prophesies in Revelation 13 that all who not only make war against Christ, as we see it in this instance, but beyond that make war with the saints, even this day as there are our persecuted brothers and sisters in other countries, they will die by the sword. The instrument that they resorted to for strength and for leverage and for influence and for power and for assurance and security and for dominance will be turned against them and will prove to be their own destruction. It's been often noted that politics is often just the coveting of power. It's the desire to be in the position 
so that you can use force in the direction you would like it to be. This is the curse of the sword-driven life. And we see it played out in the events of our government today and most governments in this earth. What is the escape? The only answer to this impulse is to recognize the superiority of the Scriptures. God's Word is what provides us the ultimate force and the ultimate cause. Listen, we are not without defense. And Jesus was not without defense at this time. The only reason he suffered under these conditions was because of the decree of Almighty God. He said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Matthew Henry says, he who has the armies of heaven at his beck can do what he pleases among the inhabitants of the earth. He who has the armies of heaven, that is, at his beck and call, can do whatever he pleases among the inhabitants of the earth. The armies of heaven were at Christ's beck and call. They sang glory to the Lord upon his birth, Luke 2, 13 through 14. They populated and stood at attention the realms and the courts of glory in Daniel 7, before the Ancient of Days, Jesus would soon arrive there, as it were, and receive his kingdom. We see them in action in 2 Kings 19.35. 185,000 Assyrians struck dead by one angel, the angel of the Lord, and one night. The weight of Scripture over the sword tells us that true power, that true force and true cause resides in Almighty God. We ought not to trust in sheer leverage wielded by foolish, sinful men, but instead place our faith and trust in the Lord who has, as Yahweh Sabaoth, myriads of angels at His command. And one of them can decimate all our physical enemies. The last warning for us in our passage today, while the scriptures are fulfilled, all the while they illustrate the capriciousness of the crowd. What is the source and sort of this mob? We see in verse 47, while he, Christ, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs. Uh, staves is sometimes translated clubs. This are, these are makeshift weapons, just sticks and pieces. You know, if you think of a mob, you know, kind of pictured iconically with uh, torches and pitchforks where the villager, villagers have an impulsive uprising and the riots uh, and, and the enrage is such that they just grab whatever's around them to use as a weapon. That's what the term club seems to indicate. Also, there are swords among them, and this would indicate probably trained soldiers commissioned by Rome and so on, perhaps temple guards and, and the like. And so with him, that is with Judas, this great crowd with swords and clubs were gathered. The source and the sort, that is the nature and the origination of this mob is apparent in the context. The nature of the weapons indicates a mixed group of, of those who are whipped up into a rage, riotous popular sentiment stirred by uh, multiple institutional factions. Both church and state uh, were represented in this faction, if you will. The religious leaders were angry with Christ, represented by the chief priests, and the government the civil government was angry with Christ, represented by the elders in the text. We can gather from this that the rule, the lordship of Christ, represents for all ages, it represents a threat to all authorities, church and state. Why? Because Christ rules over all. And this mob 
and its and its anger and sentiment from the common people and from the trained soldiers was set its face to do the bidding of these uh, two institutions. Secondly, under the capriciousness of the crowd, by the way that term capriciousness, I have a definition for you, and it it really uh, it really uh, states well. Um, how fickle the situation was. You might ask yourself, you know, how does a crowd, or how does a man who drew crowds innumerable just about with the breaking of bread, the multiplication of the same miracles, and those who followed him, how does that circumstance all of the sudden change until there are mobs crying out, crucify him, crucify him, or give us Barabbas? Well, there is no group psychology that is salvation. Uh, group psychology or the action within a group or motivation in the ma- among the masses is very fickle indeed. It's capricious. That is to say, it's changing often and quickly. It's especially often changing suddenly in mood or behavior. It's not logical or reasonable. It's based on an idea, a desire, etc. It's not possible to predict it. So let us learn a lesson from this. Do not trust the crowd. Uh, the fallacy of populism, if you will, is illustrated in our text today. Notice in verse 55, At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, to the crowds, to the masses, presumably many among them were there when he did many of his miracles. He says, Have you come out against us, or out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? He says, Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Notice the capriciousness of the crowd. The fallacy of populism. This contrast circumstance from what the crowds were before to what the crowds are now. There is no safety. There is no wisdom in the crowd. Luke 22, 53, Jesus says in a parallel text, I was with you day after day in the temple. You did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the hour of darkness. This week I was reading an interview with one of the primary uh, advisors to the president-elect. And in response to uh, those from the outside looking in who questioned his influence in the campaign, he answered this. He said, darkness is good. Dick Cheney, Darth Vader, Satan, that's power. It only helps us when they get it wrong, when they're blind to who we are and what we are doing. This is an example in the political realm of some of the misguided nature misguided use of the sword, and trusting in mere power, and also realizing the danger, we should realize the sentiments of our day are courting the danger of the sentiments of the crowd. You've heard we're in a nationalistic, populistic uprising. Populism is a common term today to describe some of the political sentiments that are boiling and stirring. I would encourage you, saints, to use discernment in times like these. Remember the quote I read before. Remember the lessons from our text today. The crowd who may be right one day in saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, may cry, give us Barabbas in the next, if that crowd is not made up of those whose hearts have been regenerated by the power of Almighty God. There is no safety in numbers. There is no truth in a majority. No law is established by the will of the people that is ultimately true, just, sound, predictable, and worthy to be uh, lauded or featured as the foundation or ethical norm at any time. Again, I turn you to the scriptures. 
The Scriptures holds the mob accountable, the majority accountable for their great sin when they cried, His blood be upon us and our children. Was that apostasy any more legitimate when it happened among the majority? Absolutely not. One man can stand against a million when he stands upon the truth. And Jesus Christ at this time was speaking truth to power when he said, the scriptures must be fulfilled. And this is your dark hour and you think you are triumphing at this time, but something is going on. This is by the decree of Almighty God. But all that has taken place, uh, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, the scriptures of the prophets. Remember this in our day. Let us close. Final cause. The capriciousness of the crowd and all that's going on all of these impulses in a time of heightened difficulty, sorrow, stress, fear, anxiety, all these happenings were under the sovereign direction of Almighty God. The scriptures were being fulfilled. This was the final cause, the ultimate controlling force. It was the decree of Almighty God. This is illustrated. I would encourage you to do this on your own time, but Go through this text and the parallel text in the gospel and make a note of each detail in the record that shows that God was orchestrating these circumstances. You'll find things like this. John 18, 6. All of this mob right here, that in verse 47 uh, came uh, with swords and clubs to accost Christ to arrest him, they fell back at a moment. They, they were all halted in their tracks and fell back as there was this brief interruption, as if to say, oh, you think you're in charge right now? No, no, no. They all fell back in John 18, 6, and then they resumed like fools, pretending they had the upper hand. Uh, you'll notice other things. Like Jesus knew what was going to happen long before it ever occurred, and he was on record saying as much in the text that we covered today. Jesus knew that Judas was on his way, and he counseled his disciples to not be surprised or shocked at these events. He had called him out at the Last Supper after all. After all. There were different points where uh, in, the, in the text a surprising interruption happens where the servant's ear of Malchus, we find his name to be, is miraculously healed. The guy who lost an ear receives a miraculous healing by Jesus Christ in the middle of his betrayal and arrest. The power of Jesus to heal and wouldn't stand a reason if this man can heal this servant's ear, then he can destroy all of us in an instant. If the crowd had had their wits about them, they would have scattered and ran. Do you remember what Peter said in his better moments when Jesus showed him a mighty miracle? Woe is me, depart from me. I am a man, a sinner. He recognized in a demonstration of the holiness of God, his own sinfulness. And just that ear by Mal of Malchus being healed in this time ought to have been enough to show the holiness and the power and the majesty and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ that should have scattered this crowd. But they, in their foolishness, continued with their deed. Why? So that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Let's close with one of them this morning. Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we have the glorious text that predicted what Christ would do on this very night we read of in Matthew today. We have read in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We recognize that was fulfilled in part in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus took on the crushing weight of the cup of the Lord's wrath. 
Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many. Divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Backing up to verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. This is what was being fulfilled as Jesus was betrayed and arrested. The word of God was unfolding in glorious fulfillment before the eyes and ears of all looking on. I pray that our eyes and ears are open to its fulfillment today. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the powerful revelation of your scriptures. We thank you that by the Spirit's pleasure to use the means of grace that you've provided us today in the proclamation of your word, we, Lord, can appreciate the weight of these moments, these instances today, every bit as much as those who moved by the Spirit understood their weight firsthand with their physical eyes and physical ears. May it be so for us today, we pray, O oh God. May we realize the power of the gospel. May we realize the weight of your scriptures. May we appreciate the humbling of the eternal Son in taking on the weight of our sin, being led without, uh, being led without protest to the slaughter, our blemish-free slain lamb, innocent, crucified for us. Lord, we look forward to continuing in this text because we know you rise again. We know it because you did it. We know it because you prophesied it. We know it because you ever lived this day making intercession for us. We know it because there our hope is fixed. We know it because you have placed this knowledge inside us miraculously by calling us forth from the death of sin through regeneration. And I pray, Lord, that we will confidently proclaim it as a result of you working these truths in and through us this day and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.